Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is ready to return in 2023. SoonerCon 31 will be held in Norman, Oklahoma on June 30th through July 2nd, 2023. Gaming, cosplay, autographs, and an art auction await. Visit SoonerCon.com for more details. The Hellmouth Convention where fandoms bleed together. Evoking the center of the mystical convergence, our event includes fandoms and travelers from all over the world. Like the Hellmouth itself, things gravitate toward it that you might not find elsewhere. The celebration is scheduled for June 9th through 11th, 2023, in Los Angeles, California. Go to thehellmouth.org to plan your visit. Happy New Year, and welcome to the first in a great line of episodes we have lined up for Hungry Trilobite in 2023. Today we're starting off with a chat with our old friend, Jared Alberic. He and I are going to have a little discussion on the intersection of 1980s sitcoms and how they compare and contrast with today's modern Hollywood culture. And those might sound like two completely different topics, and we thought they were too, but it's interesting how these things happen. Let's get started right now. On tap today, we have my buddy Jared Alberic coming back. How you doing? I'm doing good, bud. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm attempting to become the record holder for appearances on the show. You are in the running right now, for sure. And <laughs> the reason you are is that you tend to be like the Swiss Army knife of co- podcast conversationalists. <laughs> because this will be the third conversation we have on my show, like the sixth overall and it's never the same conversation twice. It's always a different tool out of our toolbox there. <laughs> we, we have a lot of corners to our nerdery. Mm-hmm. And this episode I'm excited about because this is a pretty obscure corner that you and I both share. And I've got to tell the listening audience, speaking of things that we share, you know, we showed up to record this. We're on Zoom. We can see each other unplanned, both wearing a Stay Puff Marshmallow Man t-shirt. So <laughs> apparently we are riding the same vibe in our lives, Aaron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this happened completely by accident. I don't recall exactly how the conversation got started, but I was discussing sitcoms on Twitter because I like sitcoms as a whole. They're like my productivity entertainment. I can flip them on while I'm doing some writing, while I'm organizing some stuff. It's entertaining, but a lot of times I can just go along with emotions. And the world has this fascination with the Golden Girls. And yeah, it's, it was like the big sitcom of the eighties. It's got a lot of love. Now we all miss Betty white, God rest her soul. But people don't often realize that the golden girls was just one of a trilogy made by the same producers. And that the other two shows in that trilogy don't get a lot of recognition today. Uh, I remember a show called empty nest, which was the second in the trilogy that I remember liking a lot, but I hadn't watched it since I was, eight, 10 years old, something like that. So I just made an offhand comment that, does this show hold up? Does anybody remember it? Does anybody watch it? And you said something to the effect of, I don't, but I'll take the challenge. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. Like I remembered it. I watched the show growing up in my household. It was one of those shows that was sort of popular. My mom liked it. My dad liked it. I like, it was a family show that we would sit down and I, I can't remember what night of the week it aired, but we, we'd sit down on that night 
and we would watch it. We, we all enjoyed it. So I hadn't watched it since then. But when I when I saw you on social media asking that question, I said, man, I remember liking that show. So let's let's find out together if it holds up. If that, that was the question. Does it hold up? Are these fuzzy memories that we have based on liking something when we were kids? Or does this show have a quality we can go back to? And I went back to the show, watched the whole first season, knowing nothing more than that. What was your experience? Oh, just like you. I went back and said, okay, uh, we, we agreed behind the scenes. Let's watch the first season. I said, cool, I'll have that done in a matter of weeks, which turned into months. But, and the it's, that's going to lead me into what my experience was like, because the reason it went from weeks to months is not a bad one. It's just, I started watching season one, episode one, and my wife kind of strolled by. She's like, oh, I remember that show. And she was sat down and watched it with me. And then it became a me and my wife show. Like I couldn't watch it without her. She was like, don't, don't watch any episodes unless I'm here. So I could only watch it when, <laughs> when she was there. So we would watch them uh, together. But my overall experience was extremely positive. Uh, I really enjoyed them. Uh, she really enjoyed them. Uh, we we recently, well, when I say recently, within the last couple of years, uh, probably about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, finished a rewatch of all the episodes of Night Court. And we really enjoyed that. And so I was like, I wonder if we're going to have that same enjoyment level. And it, it really, we did. We, we really had a, a true enjoyment level of watching these old empty nest shows that we remembered from our, our childhood. So uh, that's my overall, it was definitely a positive experience and I'm glad I did it. And oh, by the way, for the listeners out there, if we're tantalizing you or lighting some nostalgia matches for you, um, I got them all off of YouTube. They're all, they're all there. They're, they don't cost a dang thing. So anybody. they will be linked in the show notes. There's a couple different versions out there. There's one account I found that has a very high quality version with the exception of a little bug in the corner there. I think that that's the one I'm going to recommend. Okay. Yeah. I think my video qualities were, eh, they were okay, you know, but it's a comedy, so you don't need HD for a comedy. Right. It doesn't make the jokes funnier. So let me toss the question back to you, Aaron. You went back through, what was your overall impression? Well, first of all, I have, before I jump onto that, I have to just acknowledge something that's going to come up very obviously. Earlier in this week and an episode that's already on the feed now, by the time you hear this, I got to talk to Jeremy Miller from Growing Pains, and we got onto the topic of what is it about shows of this era, sitcoms especially, that people seem to miss. And he said, and we said something very similar to what you and I just said. This is a sh the type of show that encourages bonding and, and people sharing the experience rather mm. than something you're watching solo and you maybe go on to social media later on to talk about. This is a show you want to watch with people. That, that leads to the experience. So got to say that right off the bat. I think we're all onto something here. Absolutely. There's a certain amount of their living room is kind of like our living room. Like, mm -hmm. like, I didn't have to watch an episode to remember the layout of the living room of the Weston house. You know, I can tell you what the layout of the living room of the Cosby house is. I can tell you what the family ties. The living room is like that. There's something about you're in your living room, seeing other people in their living room that creates that bond, I think. That's just a theory I have. But anyway, back back to you, sir. Yeah, and I've never gone into any house in the real world and the living room is shaped like a trapezoid, but we always accept it <laughs> on TV. Good point. But no, but to, honestly, I knew that I was going to have a bit of a challenge because it's going to be formatted differently than a lot of the shows we're watching today. Even more recent sitcoms 
there's a difference in tone. And, and that's one of them is because it was, because there weren't as many networks then and the, the, the audience was trying to, they were trying to grab a bigger slight chunk of the pie when it came to the audience. There's this effort on older sitcoms to kind of do a little bit of everything, offer something for everyone. So there'll be some episodes that are extremely dramatic, some episodes that are extremely silly. There's not a lot of continuity or, or, or consistency in between the portrayals of certain things from episode to episode. And that's disconcerting for somebody who didn't grow up with this stuff. You and I did. So that wasn't a challenge for me, but it was a shift from what I'm used to in recent past. And once I got that down, once I slipped back into that mindset, I found I did enjoy it a lot. I, I really did. There were some moments where it was like, oh, wow, that's not a joke I would have done today. Or, you know, that that's just plain dopey. Why did they even go that route? But you know <laughs> what? It's part of the charm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's I mean, I didn't I didn't watch when I watched it. I'm sure there was a couple of jokes. I was like, yeah, that probably wouldn't fly today. But like they weren't, there was never anything mean spirited. Um, mm -hmm. It was always uh, in good fun. And it, like you said, part of the charm of it. And one of the things that le leaped out at me when you're talking about sort of the differences between shows today, and I don't, frankly, Aaron, I don't watch hardly any modern TV shows. I tend to only go back to watch old shows that I've missed or I have these super vague memories of, I don't do a lot of modern television. But one thing that leapt out to me that is a huge difference between modern TV and this, is this was back in the days when they were still doing 22 to 28 episodes a season. That was the gold standard. And I actually saw like a meme about that on Twitter recently, where it was like shows of the eighties tonight on episode 21 of what season or whatever is like modern shows. Eh, if you're lucky, we'll get out six. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yep. and i was like man it's just like the commitment to the craft the commitment to the bit the commitment to the program uh is just it's more palpable in your shows from the 70s and the 80s and there was probably more commitment to it because like you mentioned earlier um there was really back then there was really three networks and you know, you really had to commit because you it was you and two other strong competitors for that time slot, right? So you had to really commit to the craft. And now everything is so vast that it's so diluted. And uh, I'm going to get deep on here for a second there. Like, I, I think that, I know you're talking about Empty Nest, but just sort of an overall thought that's just been on my mind for years now. I think this whole spread of entertainment to where now it's not three networks anymore that it's you know a dozen different streaming services and and your favorite creators on youtube and this and that and, and everything like there's so much now that i think that kind of contributes to some of the social divide that we see um in our modern times in in this country like i know that sounds silly to think tv shows help you know you know do a social divide but my point is there used to be at least this bond where you would go into work the next day and there's a really good chance that at least four or five other people at your job saw that episode of empty nest four or five people from different backgrounds different races different cultures different we all saw it so it bonded us because there was only three networks to choose from so there was this i think there was a more bond around entertainment in general 
than there is now. Now it's like, if you find, oh, I watch, you know, this, like, here's what I'm trying to say. There's very few bonding shows anymore. There's very few shows that have such grab mm-hmm. power. You know, the one that comes to mind is probably Stranger Things. Like everybody kind of gravitates to Stranger Things, you know? And, oh, ironically, it's a period piece set in the mm-hmm. time frame that we're talking about. But I, I just think that's just, I know that's really broad for a, a chat about emptiness, but that's been on my mind for a long time. Like this big pool of entertainment now, I think does more to, to split us up than it does to, to bond us together. But I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily evil. I think it's great that we have no, so it's, much. It's, it's a great thing. that we. Yeah, uh, so I don't want to come off as saying it's negative, but I think there was a real positive value in having those three network sitcom shows that we all, that were very relatable, that we all watched no matter where we came from. There were hints of what you just said in the chat I had with Jeremy, and I think you and I are maybe better equipped to flesh it out a little bit here, because when we say there was a three networks on there, that's a little misleading, because there would be three networks, and then you probably have another four or five regional stations, which nobody really watched on a consistent basis. That was where you got your local sports. That was where you got your reruns. But there will be three networks, usually at best, two of them would have a really big show at that time slot. The other one mm-hmm. would just have something that was going to get canceled after a season. So it was really down to two shows every particular time slot. And there was typically an odds on favorite. So mm-hmm. it, there was a chance that you could get up to 70, 80% of the office watching that show, unless they, that person just didn't have an interest in that genre. Right. It was a, and it was on at the same time. Everybody had the same experience. You learned not to call people when that show was on. If right. you knew they were watching it. <laughs> appointment viewing. Mm-hmm. I kind of miss appointment viewing. Mm-hmm. In one way, you know, our lives are so much uh, easier to manage without appointment viewing. But in some way, I think guys of our age, there's part of us that kind of misses appointment viewing. There's kind of a a cool factor to go and looking at your watch and go, oh, no, it's Thursday. It's at 6.30. I got to get home. The show starts at 7, you know, type of a deal. I advocate making your own appointment viewing. If you decide you want to catch up on your latest YouTube channel, you say you're going to do that Wednesday at lunchtime. When you're eating your cheeseburger and you just flip off your phone. Or, I mean, that's the kind of thing I think is beneficial to do in our lives, but that might be yes. a step too far to the side. I, I, I'm not going to fight you on that. I uh, Now that you mentioned that, I realized that I kind of, do that (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i and to try to make a dividing point between modern content and what we're talking about here i like to go to the big bang theory and young sheldon because the big bang theory is kind of the last of the shows that were in this model we're talking about here Mm -hmm. with the broader characters and the three camera format and young sheldon being a current show is its pedigree is all modern it's got its roots in earlier types of shows, but I mean, it's it's got more advanced sets. There's a, a flowing continuity. It's set up structurally as much as a, a Game of Thrones with a long overarching narrative that would not be recognizable in the 80s. So when I say I'm watch, I'm seeing modern stuff, like, it's like I see stuff like that as being like the last vestiges of what we're talking about with Empty Nest. Oh, that's a fair point. Yeah, you had me kind of wondering, like, what was sort of the last bastion of sort of that network format and i think you're right i, I can't they, think of a better example yeah and i mean they, i'm sure they still exist somewhere and somebody will probably bring it back but the expectation on production values has gotten to the point where man that's not going to be the standard again for a very very long time if ever yeah the good news is for whoever brings it back and does it right and and makes it entertaining uh the good news there is the budgets should be relatively easy because once you have mm-hmm. your main sets built 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Empty Nest was the Weston House and the doctor's office. And it's remarkable That's how it. often <laughs> the plot would bend around the need to have the action take place in one of those two locations. Oh, absolutely. There was the rare occurrence of going to like one of the girls' apartments when they still lived away or, or you know, some other go to someone else's office. But like it was heavily two sets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like people be like why would you go to a doctor's hospital just to have a quick chat with him you would never do that but yeah it made sense for the purposes of making a tv show <laughs> uh, now i'm going to get specific about the show i love the episode where it was just torturous for harry to find out they were moving his office and mm-hmm. moving his practice and i was watching that episode Aaron, and i was like i I don't remember that. And like they, they were for real moving. And I was like, what? Why would they give up that set? And then the whole joke was they moved into a building where the office layout was exactly the same. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and they had me. They had, I was buying. I was like, what's going on here? And it just goes right back to what we're talking about. Hey, we had these two sets and dang it, we're going to use them. And we're going to make well, one of them, the punchline to a really big setup. <laughs> and that stuff flew all the time. And one of the things I, I, I kind of got to last time we, we was talked about why why these shows are so appealing in a way that maybe the modern shows aren't or don't grab people. And, uh, what's the comfort value? I mean, that is all the characters tend to be likable. Even despite their flaws, there's very rarely a time when you don't want the character to come out ahead in the game. You, you find yourself invested in their story as dopey as it might be because you just want to see that happy ending coming. Yes, I do see a tendency in modern uh, TV and filmmaking to where they will make a character who is unlikable because that character is supposed to represent this segment of society that I don't like. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make a character that represents them and, and we can all hate them. And I'm like, you know, anytime you build something around the concept of, hey, we can all hate this, you're, it's not a really great for, for no. success. I mean, I get what you're doing. And throughout these episodes of Infinite, there are unlikable characters that show up and have to be dealt with, mm-hmm. right? But I, to get to the core of what you're saying, even the smarmiest character, just Charlie. I love Charlie. Just love it. Like he's, he's lovable because he's an idiot. Like he, he's again, there's nothing mean spirited about Charlie. He's just mm-hmm. not smart enough to realize what he's doing. Right. <laughs> and I remember being, you know, an eight, nine year old kid, and Charlie was by far my favorite character. Oh, yeah. I loved everything that guy did. I lit up when he came on. And then I'm realizing this is not a dude I should have been using as a role <laughs> model at eight years old. No, no, he's he's a terrible person, but like he, it's embraced. It's embraced in a way that makes him likable like in modern Mm -hmm. storytelling tv or movies they would just make him so dislikable and you'd be like yeah i get it nobody should be that way but like they were able to say hey nobody should be this way but these people do exist and he's not evil he's just dumb Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and there's a lovable quality about him and there are so many shows like that like if you think back to some of the other shows like almost every show had had that person who was like just sort of like a sex maniac uh, mm-hmm. who was not that bright you know i i could think of other shows that had sort of that character uh built into them it was very much a staple of <laughs> of the 80s but david leisure the actor really uh, was able to put on this i guess the only phrase i can use is likable sparminess is that a, mm-hmm. is that a thing <laughs> likable sparminess patented right here. Hey, oh. 
obviously an extension of the Joe Isuzu character that I think pretty much was the prototype for Charlie there. I, oh goodness. Okay, I was just you got the reference right. <laughs> what did you say? The the Joe Isuzu character. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. That that was the proto Charlie right there. Oh, so wait a minute, wait a minute. You blew, you just blew my mind because I know that David Leisure was Joe Isuzu. Yeah. I didn't realize that predated this. I'm pretty sure it did. I can I look thought, up to be it sure. It was a off of the, and you're probably right. It's just in my mind, I always thought he did Joe Suzu after this, but. No, no, because I'm I'm pretty sure this came first and this? they said, this works so well and this dude nails that so much. Oh Let's my goodness. Roll with it. I, I 100% hope, hope you're right because I have a very foggy memory of it, but like. Well, yeah, I mean, we're The second young. you said Joe Suzu, like Joe, yeah. Oh, that was, da- oh, that was David Leisure. I thought, I think he did those after but you know what i'm the wrong person to ask because this show started in 1988 and i was living in germany and we did not get it i didn't start watching this show until the early 90s when we returned from germany so my timeline for it's probably pretty wonky okay uh joe zuzu the first appearance was in 1986 look at you just just blowing my mind on this and i'm and you said this was 1988 this show premiered yep yep. okay i just didn't want to say the wrong thing there no you nailed it and that's that's great because you like fix this timeline in my head because i always assume that the the suzu folks were like oh we really like this character from mpns do some commercials with him and it's the opposite like he showed that that quality in the commercial and they, ah, you blew my mind. You blew yeah. my mind here on the episode. Well, and it's like there's so many weird intersections that you see here. Like people, most people don't realize that Golden Girls had not one but two spinoffs, which were all very close in, in operation back in the day. Characters would be swapped back and forth between them. Uh, people got invested in and in sitting down for it was like a, a movie night sometimes. But the three episodes would be lined up together, and they would have one overarching story, and that was something to talk about for sure. I tell you what is killing me right now, Aaron. When okay. you reveal the answer, I'm gonna feel so much better. What's the third show? Nurses. <laughs> Nurses. Okay, that's what I didn't watch as much, so I don't feel as bad. <laughs> I, as much as I barely remember Empty Nest, I remember almost nothing of Nurses except for a few key episodes that I must have watched like 17 times. Um, and I think looking back at the the episode list, I think I stopped watching it midway through. I think that's why it's such a blank. I'm pretty sure I watched all of Golden Girls and the bulk of Empty Nest back in its heyday. Oh, definitely. Like I said, we returned from Germany in the early 90s. And that's when I remember, especially, we watched a lot of Golden Girls, a lot of Empty Nest. And, you know, as a kid, I don't think I even realized how connected Empty Nest was to Golden Girls. In fact, when you and I first started talking about this, I texted about it to my other podcasting crew over in Longbox. Said, hey, I want to talk to Aaron about Empty Nest. Who remembers that? And then Delvin immediately wrote, because Delvin has this amazing ability to remember theme song lyrics. He, he sent me, just started texting the lyrics to the to the theme song Empty Nest because that's what he does. And then I think it was him who was like, I'm pretty sure it's a spinoff of Golden Girls. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? And then when I started rewatching them, I was like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I knew that. I knew they were like neighbors. Um, yeah. And and within season one, I'm pretty sure each one makes an appearance. I'm pretty sure all the Golden Girls make at least one appearance in season one. I Yeah, I think you're right there. I wasn't actually counting it, but I do remember each individual at a moment yeah they they did for sure 
Speaking and... of appearances, uh, I know this is in the weeds, but I had to get it off my chest. There was one of the later episodes, might have been the last one, where it was kind of a neat little episode because it was really about about Harry as a doctor sort of taking this one kid through the different phases of his life yes and two of the three phases uh were famous actors that were would be famous one was steven <laughs> dorf was middle school age and then like college age was the uh, the guy from friends like matthew matthew perry, perry. i think mm-hmm. yeah not as familiar with friends but yeah i was like that's kind of interesting they had two kind of big names and an and interesting sort of last uh of the season episode too and I, I did when you mentioned the theme song, I had to check on it because it occurred to me earlier during the watch. But the theme song "Life Goes On" was done by Billy Vera, who had a hit single at this moment in 1981. Which, if you heard the song, you'd remember it. Is that the it, one? That's what did you that's think? the one? Yeah, which, which was featured on Family Ties. Yes, which is some, <laughs> another show I've been going through. Look at the combined memories of Jared and Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just, it was interesting to me because so often now, if TV shows have a theme song at all, which is not really a thing anymore, it's just a quick thing they did on a contract. The person who sang the song doesn't necessarily get a lot of recognition or credit for it. And like, this was a, at the time you had, Huge people doing TV theme songs. It was a thing. It was a thing. Yeah, they're they're. See, now you're bringing up stuff that I again don't watch a lot of modern TV. But you're right. There's not really theme song. I can't. The last TV show I can think of with a memorable theme song was probably Big Bang. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't even watch a ton of it, but I remember it had a catchy theme song by the Bare Naked Ladies. Yep. I think. So yeah, that's bring back theme songs, Hollywood. Hollywood's afraid they can't afford the screen time because you're shrinking episodes down to 22 minutes now. You don't want to take oh. up 30 seconds worth of theme song. Oh, that's right. And everybody click, everybody clicks skip intro now. That that I do not like that button. I, no, I don't like it either. I I feel like it's a table setter, man. It gets uh-huh. me in the mood. I don't I don't skip intro. I don't no. do it. I, I I mean the Family Ties theme song was Johnny Mathis. <laughs> was that Johnny Mathis? I believe so. Wow. Married with Children had Frank Sinatra. I mean, come on. I mean, come on. (laughs) Bring back the theme songs. We will not skip them. Well, Aaron and I won't skip them. No, no, we'll be the only two people listening to them, but we will not skip them, damn it. (laughs) It's a pretty cool little theme song, too. Life goes on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so do we. I can I can hear it, man. Like that, you get that you get what the show is about before you even know the show, and that helps when you're trying to decide. You know, in this day and age, when we can just decide, ah, eh, screw this, I'm going to find something else. Or, you know, like like the Elvis on the Simpsons, all the showing no good. You know, it's like you're <laughs> you're going to give the show a chance if you like the intro. Yeah, and it really provides a tone for the show, even though, like you said, sort of the show can be a little tonally all over the place mm-hmm. uh, throughout, not just throughout the season, but throughout an episode. Yes, it can be tonally all over the place a little bit, but somehow they always pulled it off. And I'm really going to start tying back these things we talked about. I think the way you pull off a really tonally wacky episode and season is you have grounded and likable characters to see you through. Mm -hmm. And like you say, even our most unlikable character, which is Charlie, the most unlikable on paper. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the show he might be your favorite and i would understand why but they all had this really great 
great quirk about them. You know, uh, we haven't even mentioned um, Park Overall, who I think is great. I really wanted your opinion on her. I love Park Overall. I love her. Like this is this is one of those characters that I will never forget. I always liked her because she was very, very, very funny. She she laid it on thick, and she was fun, and she was that clearly that strong uh, character who who she ran the office. You know, Harry's mm-hmm. the doctor, and it's his office, but she's she's the one making sure everything happens well and she does it in a very funny way and even when i was watching this show i was probably 13 14 15 and i just thought not only on top of all that and probably because of all that she's also very pretty yeah like she's just she's just when i say she's attractive i do mean physically but like everything about her is attractive because she's so just who she is committed to who she is unapologetically who she is that's what I like about her. <laughs> yes. And, and I mean, part of it, this, this definitely, they got the, the rough edges sanded down as throughout the first season. But the first six to seven episodes, Park Overall's Laverne is like, if you sent went up to somebody with a sack of Legos and said, build a Southern lady out of these, this <laughs> is what they would have come up with. It was such a ham-handed characterization at first and they very quickly finesse her to show how smart she is to show how she thinks to show her sense of humor and they they she's still a caricature for sure but they make her a caricature that you believe in that you root for yes you know as a resident of many years of the great state of alabama you know i you see southern caricatures a lot in movies and roll my eyes or whatever but this is one of those ones where you're right, they didn't initially lay it on thick, but I kind of already knew where it was going. So I there was no real eye rolling because they've proven what I've learned from living here. I'm I'm not I'm not a southerner by birth, but I am by adoption. I've lived here several, several years now. They've proved what I learned by living here is that that stereotype that, that southerners are all just kind of uh folksy and dumb, you know, that's that can be frustrating because I've met a lot of really smart people here. And what they end up learning about with her and leading her too is that yes yeah, she is very smart and she's very capable she's still folksy but folksy doesn't have to equal dumb no right so i would i would argue that you know a, a quote-unquote dumb character would probably be more like charlie or or betty white's character on golden girls you know mm-hmm. where they kind of strip mining they're not very bright but yeah they they always portrayed uh, laverne as capable still kind of folksy and backwoods but capable and i know a ton of people like this here in the great state of alabama i have neighbors that are very 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 southern and they very very much speak like this but they're some of the most hard working and respectable people i've ever met <laughs> so you know <laughs> i i love the fact that it gets so easy for hollywood to go let's make fun of this other people um and they didn't do that here they they, they no. got a, and i think the better for it i think they got a lot more out of the character because of it and, and, and Charlie on the flip side, because we, we talked about how dumb he is. And I there was an episode toward the end of the season where he wins a dog in a gambling match. And he's talking about first uh, racing it and then breeding it. And me being somebody who cares very much about animal welfare, like my head goes to a lot of dark places when I hear about something like this. And yet at the same time, I realized that's 2022 Aaron talking here. Hmm. We, we would have known kind of back in and the 80s were watching this, that this was going to wind up a joke. It didn't matter how the, the ball got rolling. We knew this character was dumb. We knew nothing super vicious would come out of it. We were just going to see a funny story play out. And we just had to go along for the ride. <laughs> I see. I see. 
and, and that's when we say these things can be tonally all over the place. I mean, you look over episodes where how many deaths take place in the first season? I mean, we, we talk about Harry's wife passing away. Uh, the girls have a great aunt that passes away. Uh, but yeah, they keep bringing this up and, and they, they each time it becomes a very different situation. Uh, I mean, Harry's you know spouse is treated with great reverence because it's, they portrayed him in a great deal of pain for the first couple episodes and it takes a while to shake that out. And yet when the aunt passes away, it's just, uh, it's silly. It's, it's silly the reactions they're getting because it's like, you know, they're, they're all worried about who's going to get what in the will. And it's something that you would have seen on like the Brady Bunch years, something like that. It's that mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. what, what are we even doing here? It, but that comes from the fact that in the 80s, when you were trying to grab so much of the audience, it's like, well, I, I want this scene to grab the people who want the drama and this scene to grab the people who like the comedy and this scene to tug at the heartstrings of the people looking for a little romance and uh, can we throw in a little innuendo for the teenagers in the audience, a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And that's, and it was tough to put all that in the same pot in 30 minutes. Yes. Yes. And somehow they pulled it off with a lot of different tones, but it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, put a little wink nudge to the teenagers. Cause remember I told you I, I, peak of watching this was 13, 14, 15 for me. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the bones of what makes this show, there's nothing in there. That should appeal to the team for this. It's a seniors show. Mm -hmm. It's an adult show, much like um, Golden Girls, much like Murder She Wrote. It's kind of a show built around older people. So what is there for a 13, 14, 15 year old? Well, it's there because they just they found that that right something that make 13 14 15 year old Jared say this show is pretty funny i want to keep watching it while they still maintained their their audience of the older folks and whatnot so again just as we take a macro look at these and shows from this era it's it's fascinating you know what all angles they kind of had to look at to grab that that time slot that we talked about but yeah mm -hmm. it's really well put together even though there's a lot of tonal shift and and like you said you know harry starts from like i don't even know if i want to date again which kind of graduates into i don't know if i can be physical with a woman again which mm -hmm. graduates into i don't know if i can love again you know and this is all in season one you know just kind of rebuild he's kind of rebuilding from the the, the way you know stereotypically we we build as a as from youth you know you know, uh, can can I can I take this next step, next step, next step? Because he hasn't had to take it in so long. He doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, he kind of has to take it slow. And it's it's neat to watch that that happen. And uh, we haven't mentioned his name really, but Richard Mulligan is extremely charming with everything he does. So it's it's a fun ride to watch. It is for sure. And they're they're having to. He's very credible as a, a man who's trying to date somewhat awkwardly, but is clearly very attractive to the women in his life. And he's very credible as a father figure to two grown daughters, actually three. And, you know, as a quick aside, it's neat how we establish there's a third daughter who doesn't actually show up until much later in the show and really needed to be there. So that, that was a very fortunate little trick done very early in the show. And he's credible with the children in his practice too. That that's not something that 
you have to to work to believe. So that it, you know, we we talk about how ham-fisted and and broad these stereotypes can be, but he handled that with a great deal of subtlety. He he did, um, and like I said, kudos to him as an actor. He's just good. Uh, he's got a great look. He knows his. Speaking of his look, like when they're like they kind of keep keep pressing that he's about fifty. And I'm like, he doesn't look 50 no. to me. He looks 60, 65 to me. And you know what? When the show started, he was 55, mm-hmm. I think, 56. He was 56 when the show started. And I was like, man, I mean, <laughs> I don't mean this sounds so that I was like, he looked kind of older for 56. Because I just assumed I was like, oh, they're trying to pass the 60-something-year-old man off as a 50s. But no, I mean, he ended up turning 60 while he was making it. But um, and that sounds like a negative thing, but he has a real um, charismatic quality that kind of lets you see past that because it's just, you know, my my uh, jaded adult eyes. I'm like, they're trying to pass this guy out. <laughs> 50. But, you know, that, that, that thought went fleeting out of my head after a while just because he is very, very charming. You and I have talked about this on several of my other appearances because it, it kind of has to come up per, by contract. Um, you know, for years I taught leadership classes and I'm big on leadership and personal development. And, and all this is a sitcom and he's a doctor. He does play a real leadership role in, in not only his office, but in his home life, especially, he kind of has to be that leader to work out issues between the siblings, even though they're in their thirties and they should be able to work out themselves. That's half the joke. He has to manage the wacky neighbor Um, in his office. He has the, um, the the strong subordinate you know who requires very little leadership <laughs> leadership mm-hmm. much more of a get out of her way and let her do what she does and let her help you kind of an attitude so from a leadership point of view he's a great character you know i, I could certainly use him in any of my classes to say here's a guy who knows when to step up here's a guy who knows when to sit back here's a guy who this happens a couple times in season one Aaron, who knows when he's made a mistake and how to apologize because he does make mistakes. He's fallible, he's human, but he's also hum, human human, enough and smart enough to not have a lot of pride, not let pride destroy his relationships and say, yeah, I, I could have handled that better. Let's take another shot at this. And I think that's what makes him a great character is that, that not only does he know how to, when to lead, when to follow, but when to recognize his mistakes and address them in a really proper way. That's really really strong suit and i swear and i won't bring up leadership training again in this episode well he's the smart enough to realize he's not always or even often the biggest personality in the room and he doesn't have to compete for that top spot if he chooses not to right and that's something that uh again is is a credit to the people writing it because it's what makes these broad and silly characters get very believable very quickly excellent point and i guess we should make that as a compliment to the actor because a lot of actors would say oh i i need to this is my show so i need i need the spotlight and it looks to me like richard mulligan was smart enough to say no this is we need to let certain characters shine and develop very much what i call the tom cruise method these days um on some of our podcasts we've talked about some of the more recent mission impossible movies and tom has been smart enough to surround himself with other great talented actors as part of his mission impossible team and not say everything has to be about me you know everything has to be about he shares the screen and, and i'm seeing this happen in the 1980s 1988 with richard mulligan 
saying, hey, I'm going to surround myself with these other strong actors and I don't have to dominate everything. And I think that's so a tip of the cap to the writers for writing a character that's like that. And apparently Richard Mulligan was smart enough to let that happen, too. For sure. And I really would like to do more research into how these shows came about on the back end, because, you know, especially when you talk about it being an older person show, which it very much was. I mean, I remember it happened in my house for the reason that my grandparents liked it. And that was kind of the standard in, in our house is that if they didn't like it, it wasn't going to be shown. So that colored <laughs> a lot of what I watched as a kid, just because it met that standard and they loved golden girls. And I, I look back and I realized that most of the other shows on there would have been aimed at a younger audience or at least showing younger characters intending to grab that what the tv is considered to be the ideal demographic the the 30 and early 40 somethings with disposable income and here we have shows like golden girls and empty nest saying we're going to aim for the 50 plus crowd and everybody all the younger kids end up kind of following behind them yeah i, I again i'd love to to do the research just like you said I got to think that their plan was let's win. Let's win the parents and grandparents and kids kind of have to watch what they're putting on. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the extra step they took was let's not just ignore that audience. We know they're there. Mm -hmm. We've already got our hooks into the forties, fifties, sixties audience. Those 40 year olds, especially probably have kids at home. So let's, let's write it smartly. I don't know how they did it, what magic they used, but again, 13, 14, 15 year old Jared, I was there sitting next mm -hmm. to my mom, dad, brother, sister <laughs> on the couch, watching the show and laughing and enjoying it. Just and good, good entertainment. Just trying to think what other shows would you have watched in the span of like 87 to 89? Whew, 87 to 89. And I, you don't have to be specific on the earth, but I'm just trying to see if you were to look at empty nest peers. Yeah, I would definitely, those peers have been? definitely think Cosby show, mm -hmm. family ties. Um, uh, <laughs> this doesn't fit into the mold, but unsolved mysteries was very, it was a big 87, 89 era show. Um, but as far as like sitcoms, yeah, I immediately think of, the ones we would watch in the house would be Cosby and and, and Family Ties would be the two strongest ones. Yeah. And, and again, those were shows that would have older characters as guest stars, maybe even recurring characters, but they would focus on the mom and the dad who mm -hmm. were on the tail end of their 30s usually. Yeah. And yeah, because that was the traditional sitcom model going to back to the early 50s with not right. a whole lot of deviation. Right. It is. I, I wonder if they... The, the, tv executives learn something about demographics and sort of maybe winning over the older people because you said something interesting if, if grandpa and grandma didn't like it it didn't get put on i'm like oh, that's interesting because if you think about it there's you have golden girls you have empty nest you have murder she wrote you have matlock mm -hmm. um, these are all shows that i watched the heck out of <laughs> in, the, in the 80s and early 90s and each one of those four i just cited are definitely have more of a senior feel to them so I wonder if there's just something to that. I wonder if like there's some secret formula back at NBC, CBS, ABC back in the day where they were like, all right, here's how we win over the grandparents. And if we win the grandparents, we win everybody. You know, because <laughs> so, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, what other pop, I mean, Cheers was, Cheers and Night Court were really big. I think they mm -hmm. were back-to-back -back shows. 
on I wouldn't be surprised. B. I think it was Cheers immediately followed by Night Court. And I would say those were probably more targeted at your 30-ish audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but also still very accessible to 40s, 50s. Yeah, they, they had to get, in the end, Aaron, <laughs> they had to cast a broad net. And to cast it, to... <laughs> to, to say yes to somebody who just walked in the studio one day and said hey i want to do a, a show about an older doctor who's a widower and he's got these two daughters that are very different personalities and we're going to just follow them through life and somebody was like yes that sounds hilarious mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like how do you sell that, that concept and to make it as good as they did it's yes. fascinating it's well fascinating. And, and we should also we should also acknowledge two truths that are not relevant today. One is that this was an era when you could give something legs to grow. You didn't judge something based on the performance of his first three episodes. Yes, yes, yes. here, here. And this was also a case of where somebody had an existing project that was phenomenally successful and they just kind of said, do what you wanna do. I, I'm, I'm guessing. But when they came mm-hmm. in for, I'm mm-hmm. guessing there wasn't a lot of friction based on the fact that Golden Girls was making bank at that point. Yeah, they, they had a team of people that knew what they were doing. You're right. And um, there are teams like that now, but you still hear a lot of stories about people who are legitimately credible people who have trouble getting greenlighted because they're not, what they want to do doesn't fit the mold. Yeah, now you're going to get me onto another broad topic, but I all I, right. I feel I feel that way about a lot of media now. I feel like there's I guess there's more corporate hold than than letting the creatives have hold of it. Then because I, I was talking recently, I don't remember with whom, but we were just talking about like just the proliferation of wildly creative things that came out of the '80s. That just they wouldn't make them now. Like if you went in to a boardroom and pitched like just think about the plot and and the whole storyline of big trouble in little china and how mm-hmm. insane that is and you went to an office and you pitched that people would be like what what are you talking about but back then i feel like there was more creatives running the running the the, the show and they go to the money people and i think the money people just they were just like i don't know i don't know a lot about hollywood uh here's some money yeah that sounds good to me uh john carpenter go ahead and make that that film and you get these like wildly creative things i i I would argue that the 80s is one of the most wildly creative times for comic books movies television and music and i think it was just that last that last step before the money people started making more decisions than the creative people did also cocaine was really big in the 80s (laughs) that that could have had something to do with it but I just feel like it was that last step before everything sort of got corporately grabbed because, you know, now we have, you know, the big, the big easy one to talk about is Disney, right? Because Disney's got Star Wars and Disney's got Indiana Jones and Disney's got the Muppets. And I think they're like one James Bond away from having everything now or something. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think there's just some sort of value. I'm going against what I said earlier. There, There was value in having everything together. I think there was there's value in having everything apart when it comes to making creative things, keeping your money people and your creative people kind of separate, trusting a guy like John Carpenter or Robert Zemeckis or Steven Spielberg or George Lucas 
to just let them be who they are and give you this amazingly creative thing. I hate to sound like an old man. I know I sound like an old man, but I just, I don't see things as wildly creative now as I did back then. I'm going to take a tiny point and disagree with that tiny point here. Because I think broadly, you've got a really great point here. But if you look at the things that we, that from the 80s and late 70s, I have to throw that in there because there, there was definitely, that was a point sure, when sure. magic was happening. <laughs> yes. Um, and you look at the things that we cherish now, it wasn't always a case of you took the creative people and let them be them. A lot of times you took them and you gave them a project and they got a check and they had to make what they wanted with whatever that check could buy. And Good when point. you look at the end result, it you often assume they had more than they really did. Excellent point. Excellent point. No, I, I will co-sign on that. I mean, the first thing that sprung to mind as soon as those words came out was like Halloween, the movie Halloween. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's your, here's your money, John Carpenter. You're not super famous yet. Okay. We basically raised a couple grand, make something cool. And it, I, I think limited constraints make people more wildly creative. And I think that's what you were getting at. And I, and I totally agree. It is. And I think we could easily get back to a system like that without tweaking the system all that much. If we just, instead of saying every project that comes out has to make a billion dollars and fit into a larger universe. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. we got to a point where we said, you can have $30 million dollars. Just bring us back something in a year and a half. And we said mm -hmm. that to 50 people. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying what would come back would be everything would be roses, but I'd like to see the results. And I think you'd get a lot of mileage out of that. I, I think you're really on to something. And, and I'm going to be giving that a lot of a lot of thought. I think I've I think I've had that thought, but I haven't looked at it a lot. And I'm really glad you brought it forward because I think. Yeah, limited. It, it, we talked. We talked about this way back when we first started talking about empty nest. You know, two sets, mm -hmm. <laughs> two sets. Right, limited mm -hmm. constraints. Do the best you can with this, and people tend to make magic. There's nothing like a challenge to bring out the best in a man. That is a quote from Sean Connery in Highlander Two, which is obscure, but it's but you see what I'm saying. Nothing mm -hmm. like a challenge mm -hmm. to bring out the best in a person or a crew or a team. Um, I, I really think you're onto something there. I, I I would definitely like to bankroll, you know, ten movies, like you said, at thirty million dollars each. I, I picked a number. I don't know exactly how much money you but, should offer to try to get the next Ghostbusters, the next Indiana Jones. Right. But I'm saying you don't write a blank check. You give them a set amount. Right. No, I'm I'm with you because, like you said, and and it kind of that's what I was getting at too with my rant about how things were wildly creative in the '80s. Another thing about it is that everyone wasn't trying to like, of course, everybody wanted the big blockbuster, but it wasn't like the only goal, mm -hmm. right? It was like, okay, well, this one made a little money, but, you know, but these days it feels like, just like you were saying, if you don't get that immediate home run, it gets given up on, you know, mm -hmm. being TV shows or, you know, I'm a big comic book guy. It, there definitely came a, a point where if your comic didn't sell like hotcakes within the first six issues, it's done. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's there's stuff as as late as the '90s, like um, Dark Hawk ran like a hundred issues, and that that it never would have got past six issues today, and no. and you would have missed out on this big universe of storytelling. Maybe that was a bad example because not a lot of people are familiar with. It. <laughs> but the point is, get things need to have legs. Creators need to run with constraints. 
Um, I know we've kind of gotten really broad on that, but but it it really looking back at empty nests is a good example of that. Two mm-hmm. sets. Okay, we have a limited budget, but we want to do the best product we can to win this time slot. I think it starts with casting all the right people: Richard Mulligan, uh, Dida Manoff, Christy McNichol, David Leisure, Park Overall. Um, these are all care. These are all actors who I smile when I see them pop up in other things. <laughs> you know, um, so they brought the right people at the right time and made the right thing. And uh, it's I just don't see that magic. Ha- I know it's not like old man. I just don't see that happening as often as I used to. No, and, and another thing that we have to look at is the the idea of having the the grand plan, the ten year plan that that everybody seems to have now flies in the face of the fact that sometimes the audience has a different plan. Like you you, you would have now, you're going to make a movie and you're immediately planning three sequels and this merchandising and these tie-in games. And then we're going to do a, a, a cinematic universe movie in four years. And, and that's great when it works, but we've seen cases where it doesn't. And yeah, yeah. 40 years ago, the idea would have been, we'll make a movie and if it does great, we might make another, or we could make a TV series, or you know, we could just sit on it for ten years and swing back with a, you know, with a comic book. It, you 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 always step back and said, what can we do with the pieces we had? Because the idea that one project was going to feed you for life was just not there. And I, yeah, I agree. And I think that leads to uh, a faster amount of audience burnout mm-hmm. with things. Um, I think we're seeing that more and more right now. I think we are, uh, it's just my speculation. Don't take anything more than that. I think we're starting to see the flame out of the superhero cinema genre. I may be wrong. I'm, I could be quoted as one of those. Be like the time George Lazenby said there was no future in the James Bond franchise back in 1969. He was wrong. Uh, <laughs> but um, a good example, I think, is like Walking Dead was like all the rage. And then they were like, okay, what more? Can we, let's do another spinoff show. Let's do, do Fear the Walking Dead. And, and let's be ready. You know, like you said, with this comic book property, well, it started as a comic book property. But, you know, you know, they kept kind of building this. Let's add this. Let's add, add that. And then it's kind of, it burned everybody out. Um, I think there is, uh, kind of to your point, uh, uh, a certain value in releasing something and saying, okay, let's see how that goes. You know, like we say in the military, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, mm-hmm. That's exactly what you're saying. You're like, hey, you can have this great plan, you know, dark universe. And it just falls apart. I don't know if you remember dark universe. Tom Cruise did the mummy movie, which was the first. Not sp- really. Honestly. Yeah, it was supposed to be a whole bringing back the universal monster movies tom cruise did the mummy and they, they had johnny depp signed on to be like i can't remember if he was dracula or the invisible man they had angelina jolie signed on they had javier bardem was going to be frankenstein like they were going to build a whole universe about it. and then like the mummy underperformed and then they were like well screw it it's canceled mm-hmm. and i'm just like really i mean i would have at least done a second movie in my universe just to see if i mm-hmm. can get a foothold but they, you know, it's it, it's that weird immediacy thing. Yeah, uh, maybe over planning. You know, another thing we haven't even brushed on the success of Empty Nest, Golden Girls, whatever you want to talk about. Um, do you think it's easier to succeed when there's no internet, when there's no uh, YouTube channels that are already, you know, kind of shooting down your concepts before they're even put forward? 
I mean, I could, I, I've already seen a half a dozen videos about how the next Indiana Jones movie is going to be terrible. You know, and I don't know. Nobody knows, but like, no, nobody knows. And I it's, hate it's, that commentary because I, I, I've always said I don't ask much when you want to criticize something, but you should at least see the thing you're about to say is trash before you say it's trash. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of my point. Like, there, there's an internet culture now that they didn't have to deal with mm-hmm. in the 80s. In the 80s, you just put on a show. <laughs> and we all sat down and said, what is this new show? And we gave it a try. We thought, did we like it? Maybe, yes, no. And and that's how it went. You know, these days there can be shows that are basically canceled before they even come out. Mm-hmm. I, you know, whenever you listen to this podcast, um, within the last few months of us recording this, there was a, a Batgirl movie that was filmed and just they decided not to release it because they're like, eh, no, it's not good enough. It's like, okay, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You know, the internet had a lot to do with that. You know, I got to think that if they didn't release it, it had to be pretty, pretty, pretty bad. But then again, like we talk about, uh, studios are only interested in releasing blockbusters now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, why not give a try to something? I mean, if, if you didn't give a try to something, like, let's say, a really obscure vampire character from the Marvel Universe named Blade in 1996 or 7 or whenever that movie came out, like... Would Marvel even be what they are today if that if we didn't like that blade candle back in the 90s? Which is, I mean, let's be honest, by today's standards, that's a stupid risk. Hey, we're gonna put out this Marvel movie from a character you've never heard of. And oh, by the way, if you look him up, he's kind of lame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they well, did it. And I they really want to I, I would really like to sit down with a bunch of younger comic fans and without in any way attempting to disparage them, just have a conversation where I just have to say. Do you realize when I was roughly your age, there was not a comic book fan on the face of the earth who would say that Thor was a cool character? <laughs> not a damn one. Yeah, it, I mean, it, yeah, you're right. And, and I'm and, not saying I'm right. I'm not saying you're right. I'm just saying that that shift has happened so profoundly mm-hmm. that we just take it for granted now. It's like, and hey, I'm a kid who in the early 80s thought, Robin was the coolest DC hero there was. And I was laughed at and mocked at for that so roundly. Hmm. But now it's like he is he, he's one of the best. And I'm like, uh, you know, I was on board this train. I was on board one. early, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Not know? that anybody cares, but I'm saying these shifts happen mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. when you work with a property, when you give it some TLC, when you give it new life and new talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you just gotta have that got to have that room to grow you got to have that that financial backer or or company or studio system that kind of sees your vision and says yes yes go with that you know maybe it'll hit maybe it won't but i believe in it and i think that's how we got a lot of those cool things from the 80s uh, including you know empty nest which you know going back to where the the roads diverge a lot for how we got to this conversation but you know (laughs) going back to that i mean you made a good point you were like well they had this massive hit with golden girls they found a really cool formula so i think i imagine it was pretty easy for the creators to go to um i think this was nbc and say hey we've got this other idea oh yeah we trust you we you you know what you're doing give it a shot you know that's probably what they said well they probably said well we'll give it a season 
you know why I believe that so much? Because that last episode of the season was kind of weird. It didn't feel like mm. there was going to be a second season, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. And that, that, that episode really, really, it was fantastically written. It was it's touching in a way that most of the others weren't. It was a great way to wrap it up that they weren't going to get anything else out of it. Yep. But lo and behold, they got 24 more episodes after a 22 episode initial season. And, um, you know, and it's all goes back to it. They, they, they were willing to, to risk it and try and say, hey, well, let's do a season of this, you know, and I'm quite certain I have no paperwork to back this up, but I'm quite certain when they were shooting that last episode, they were like, I don't know if we're going to get re- renewed, mm-hmm. but we're going to, we know we did our best. And lo and behold, they got renewed in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, and 94. <laughs> well, yes. And not only was it a very unusual script and one that they would have geared toward being a final episode, but it was clearly a very cheap episode to shoot because it only required that one set, mm-hmm. only one set out of the two. It had only one, two of the regular cast members, one of which was only in for a minute. Good point. And they just got a couple of guest stars, which I'm sure none of those people charged a whole lot for what they had. That's true. They, there's a lot. Um, I have in front of me a list of famous guest stars that have been on Empty Nest. If you're interested in me cherry picking some names. Sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's see. We have Mr. Don Adams and Lonnie Anderson, Garth Brooks, Angie Dickinson, Stephen Dorff, Morgan Fairchild, Zsa Zsa Gabor, Bobcat Goldthwait, Phil Hartman, Carol Kane. I'm, pick, I'm, I'm, I'm cherry picking. Of course, all the cast of Golden Girls. Geraldo Rivera, Jerry Orbach, Barbara Mandrell, just to name a few. They got, uh, and I'm, and I really cherry pick. There's a lot of notable stars uh, on that. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good show. Like I said, lasted seven seasons. It, it's a little a little more fun background for you since I'm playing fun trivia guy now. Mm-hmm. Um, season one ended up being the number nine show of the year. Okay. Season two, also number nine. Season three was its high point. It was the number seven show in 1990, which is funny because I know that's when we were back from Germany and when I started watching it. So I like to think I was the one that pushed it up two slots. And then from there, it kind of goes down and season four was the number 23 show. Season five was 48. Season six was number 66. And its final season, it was the 118th ranked show. Yeah, so um, I guess it did have a, a fizzle and a fade, but I think it'll always have a certain charm. I don't remember them ever deviating from the formula too much, but I'll be honest with you, I probably didn't see a lot past season five. Okay, which I, I think do... is about the time that that uh, the other sister shows. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, Christy McDougall had some personal problems, which drove her away from the show, and they conveniently had this other daughter already written in, so they just brought her in. And I remember enjoying the show, but not as much. And I think as I continue to watch, I'm going to be interested in seeing: Did I was the writing just not working anymore, or was the lack of Christy McNichol really that profound that we needed Interesting. to. I did not remember that she had departed the show. I didn't, didn't remember that the other daughter essentially replaced her. I thought she mm-hmm. was in addition to, I didn't know, did not remember that. Now it was a new Darren on Bewitched sort of situation. I see. Yeah. I mean, we did acknowledge there was a transition, but that was why I was really interested. It wasn't like they invented the character. The character was written in from almost the first episode. Yeah. But just it wasn't necessary until the end. 
Interesting. Interesting. Now you got me wanting to press on. And I mean, I already like the show. I could definitely watch. I'm going to have to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, that's going to be one of those things where it's like, I, you know, now I've started, I've got to kind of go on through and see what it's like, kind of take the ride I, I would have taken and just see if I actually did see it again, because you went through that list of guest stars. And I remember those appearances, even if I don't remember the story or what that character was like, I can remember seeing them on screen, especially Don Adams, because I, I, I was a huge Get Smart fan. And I can now remember Charlie thrilled to have met Maxwell Smart. That <laughs> sounds like sounds like Charlie. Yeah, um, I'm going to flip the podcast script here and ask you a question. Um, okay. Sort of since we're sort of doing sort of an overall look back from our wildly uh, variant conversation here, although it's been great. Um, is this show? I know you have fond memories of it, like I do, but like, I, and I'm not going to hold you to this, but like, um, sort of like scale of one to ten for sitcoms of the era. You know, if you had a top 10 sitcoms, where do you think this would fall in your list? Oh, well, see, I'm going to have to say mid-pack. I was thinking the same. Okay. And only because even though I think it's a, a very good show from what I'm seeing now and, and what I'm going through, there's a lot of really solid contenders for the top few slots, which I don't think can be challenged very easily. Mm -hmm. Such as? Uh, easily, Alf, Cheers, mm. Um, I have my feelings about it now, but I can't disparage the Cosby show. Absolutely. I mean, as far as the show itself, it was, there were a lot of very, very talented people working on that show and they all deserve to have their work respected. hundred percent. Um, I mean, even looking at, uh, the golden girls, I, I remember liking that show a lot. I like it whenever I see it now, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it would be very hard for me to put it at anything higher than like four or five. No, I'm with you. I think it's definitely in my top 10, but probably not, maybe not necessarily the top half of the top 10, you know. Sure, sure. But I think it's very, very solid. And um, just overall, my review returned to it, you know, after not having seen it for 30 years plus <laughs> was uh, was it was good. I'm glad I did it and, you know, did it, did it sort of fulfill how I remembered it in my head? I would say yes. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I didn't have the experience of getting in there and realizing it was grossly different than what I'd remembered. I didn't realize that, oh man, I've been eating margarine all these years. I, it, it was, no, it was <laughs> butter. It might not be the way I make it now, but it was butter. <laughs> I like that. I like that comparison. So interesting. Yeah, I just kind of want to see how you felt about it, sort of the overall um, pantheon of of those those shows. And I think I would I would agree with you. And in case you didn't know this, and you probably did, there is a 24-hour streaming ALF channel. I have them on DVD. Okay. So I'm I'm set and I, I actually set it up so that I can stream them to myself anytime I, I so desire. My wow. only complaint is that the DVD contains the syndication cuts of the episodes. Oh. So I continue to search for a, a high quality source for the original cuts, which may not exist in a usable form right now. Huh. I, I'd be interested to see if you do maybe try the ALF 24-hour channel and see what they're putting on. Because I like, might do that. I'm like you. I have all the, like, for example, Mystery Science Theater is my jam. I have all of them. I have them all on DVD. I have them all in my Plex so I can stream them to myself whenever I want. But I still put on the 24-hour 
mystery science theater channel um just for the hell of it sometimes when um, you good no good when you say you have all the mystery science theaters do you mean literally every episode yes including the ones that were never commercially available yes okay because if you didn't <laughs> we'd have a conversation offline. <laughs> no, yes, I have. Okay. I have every episode. Wink. Wink. Okay. I even bought, there was a, there was a box set that they had to pull from distribution and mm -hmm. I had that one pre-ordered. So I actually got it. I still have it physically. I, I got that. People, yep. Few people that has the physical one because they had to pull it. I got in under the wire on that one too. I think it was like, <laughs> I, I ordered mine the day before they had it pulled or something like that. And, yeah. <laughs> And I just got in under the wire on that one. <laughs> it yeah, had like, it, wasn't there like a Godzilla movie on there or something where they didn't yeah. actually get the rights cleared properly? <laughs> right. <And> so... <laughs> or they, they had the rights and then lost them unexpectedly. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember them saying, hey, uh, you can't get this one. And I'm looking at my shelf like, I, I've got it. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Glad I pre-ordered that one. Yeah, MST3K, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but getting that on video was a 20-year project oh, between yeah. when they first related the first VHSs and DVDs to actually getting that final release. Oh, you know, you this, again, it's a whole other podcast, but you make an excellent point because I just now realized that I was missing four episodes and I just found them and got them and added them to my Plex about three months ago. So that's how long my journey was. <laughs> mm -hmm. I hear you. <laughs> I'll see you back for Mystery Science Theater episode. Aaron. We might. We're, we're, we could definitely do that because I love my MST3K episodes. That is one of my favorite topics ever. But let's put a button on this now so I have a chance to plug you and all your projects and get it in the show all notes. Right. All right. No more Mystery Science Theater talk for now. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll plug myself. You just need to relax over there. All right. If you like these verbal meanderings that i just presented to you on aaron's wonderful podcast i have some podcasts of my own i am on the long box crusade podcast where we podcast about a heck of a bunch of nerdy stuff uh, come check it out we have a whole bunch of shows everything from sherlock holmes to comic books to action films to the transformers to gi joe you name it the long box crusade please check that out i'm also on a uh, podcast called on her majesty's secret podcast which is you probably guessed all about james bond aaron's been on a couple episodes i did when we were when i was going through all the james bond video games he was one of my interviewers for that audio documentary that was a lot of fun and if you're interested in checking out my artwares, i am at yard sale artist on twitter facebook and instagram and my website is www.theyardsaleartist.com all my art stuff can be found there thank you aaron and you will see all that in the show notes of this episode on my website, aaronbossig.com, as well as any links to resources we might have talked about on here. At the very least, I have to throw that old Joe Azuzu commercial in there because that is necessary <laughs> viewing for the younger audience. My Sharon, mind is blown. My mind is blown that that came out before the show. <laughs> Jared, thank you so much for being here. And I would be glad to have you back for a fourth episode anytime. Thank you, Aaron. I always enjoy chatting with you. You are a ton of fun and we'll probably have you over in Longbox Crusade pretty soon. Glad to be there. All right. Thanks, dude. I would like to thank Jared for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I'm going to remind you that Jared has been on Hungry Trilobite twice before, and I'm going to link to each one of his appearances in the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com. 
When an episode like this drops on a Sunday, what you're seeing is a returning guest. Somebody's been on Hungry Trilobite before, and we're bringing them back to further the discussion. When an episode drops on Thursdays, that is a brand new guest to the show, and we're getting to know them for the first time. Well, the best way is to go ahead and subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice, whether you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, all of these platforms have some sort of subscribe function. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button and automatically download the new episodes. That way, no matter whether they're new or old guests, you're going to get the whole mix. It's a new year, and I'd ask you to go ahead and check out sci-fi-coffee.com. The Sci-Fi Coffee Company spent 2022 doing their best to put out a great product of high-quality coffee with a sci-fi theme, and they're not slowing down one bit for 2023. What I love about Sci-Fi Coffee is that each one of their blends is themed around a science fiction concept, and they're adding new concepts and blends all the time. You can get 10% off your order by entering the coupon code HUNGRY, as in Hungry Trilobite. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.